let's go let's go into a little bit more history, shall we? Mm-hmm. Yellen's statement appeared to be a symptom of a deep political hole facing the White House five months before the midterm elections. Mm. Okay. This is in June, five months from effectively now. Right. Right. Telling Americans that the economy is strong. Ugh. There are 8.3 million new jobs and inflation should be lower by the end of the year isn't working for President Joe Biden. Damn. So she has been a Democrat. Yes. Her entire career. Mm-hmm. And this is the bias that somebody in her position who is smart, who's educated, who's got the experience, who's who has been the, in the White House. Yeah, she has the resume. So her her voice, people people listen to what she has to say. And for her to come out and say that, she, and I mean, have, have some integrity. You served as the Fed chair. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Higher Standard Podcast, where we give you ultra-premium, unfiltered truth when it comes to building your wealth and curating the lifestyle of your dreams. No games, no drama, and no shenanigans. I am your host, Chris Nahibi, and I'm here to help you distill the immense amount of information and disinformation out there on the interwebs and give you the opportunity to choose a higher standard for yourself. There are no gurus here, and no one gives a damn about how wealthy you look. I'm an attorney and a banker, amongst other things. Does that mean you should listen to me? Hell no. This is just full disclosure that while we talk about money, wealth, law, investing, and a lot of related topics, you should always speak to your own advisors for an opinion tailored to your unique investment perspective. I am obligated to tell you that nothing contained in this show is in fact legal or investment advice and is being provided solely for entertainment purposes. So sit back, relax your mind, and get ready for a different kind of podcast where we elevate your baseline in crispy, high-resolution audio. This isn't a different standard. It's the higher standard. Welcome back to the smooth, sexy sounds of the higher standard. I am one of two hosts. I am Chris Nahibi, and that over there, the giggling guy, is... Saeed Omar. Hello, everybody. If you like this show, please subscribe to it, whether you're listening to it on Spotify or on Apple. And leave us an honest five-star review. You practiced it like six times, didn't you? Man, I stuttered a lot on the last one. (laughs) You called me out on it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I'm going to apologize in advance. This week, we got into a bunch of data, and there's a lot of new stuff coming out. So we're going to try to touch a lot of topics really, really quickly. I did go down the rabbit hole with Saeed on some of this. So we're going to talk about some history as it relates to the current economy. And I think some of it will provide some perspective on a lot of the things that we're all hearing and seeing, particularly as we enter into 2023. Mm. So we're looking backward to look forward. Yeah. But before we do that, let us set the stage with our usual entry, the stuff that we're hearing about today. Pending home sales fell 10% in September, much worse than expected, according to a CNBC article. Mm Mm-hmm. So, pending home he- pending home mm-hmm. pending home sales dropped 10.2 percent in September from August, according to the National Association of Realtors. Economists had predicted a four percent drop. Sales were down 31 percent year over year, the lowest level on the pending sales index since June 2010, excluding April 2020's COVID period. Right. That's a big drop off. Big drop off, and it's it, it's going to continue to go down. And it. It's kind of shocking on some level to me still a little bit. It's, it's not lost on me that everybody was so, you know, home values aren't going to go down and this is not going to happen. And then it was literally the first thing that 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 we declared, like literally a recession. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes to show you that the interest rate hikes that the feds were doing 
is actually taken into effect. This is the first industry that it hit. Well, it seems to be one of the only industries that's been really hit hard. I mean, the hardest clearly by far. And maybe second would be the tech industry. Uh, tech industry a little bit. I think the banking industry is getting a little bit of that now too. I, I think there's a lot of tertiary people. The mortgage industry, absolutely hard. Right. I, I wonder if, if you had to compare the two, uh, real estate versus the mortgage space. Mm-hmm. I would I would venture to guess the mortgage space is probably getting it worse than real estate though. Yeah. Just yeah. because their transactional volume has dropped off to like essentially nothing. Yeah, exactly. And this is still on its way down. Still on its way down. And we're seeing a lot of predictions on home values and a lot of things that that are really early indicators of, I think, additional stress. But yet we still hear things like the supply and demand argument, right? Like we have mm-hmm. a historically low amount of supply. So as rates continue to to go up, it's going to continue to drive demand even lower. But then when rates go back down... You'll have this spring back in in demand, but there's not enough supply to meet that demand. And I think the problem is a lot more complex than that. Mm -hmm. So if you recall, not too long ago, the home builders came out and they were one of the first people to say, hey, there's a problem here. We're going to pull back. Right. Yeah. And then the banks said, hey, there's a problem here. We're going to pull back on things like construction. Exactly. Well, here we are again, home builders, according to another CNBC article. Home builders say they're on the edge of a steeper downturn as buyers pull back. Yep. And a quote I wanted to share was, housing starts for single-family homes dropped nearly 19% year-over-year in September, according to the U.S. Census. Building permits, which are an indicator of the future of construction, fell another 17%. I'm actually surprised it's not more, to be honest with you, because who's still building? I remember I shared that listing, a couple of listings with you Um not too long ago, where people are now starting to list their projects on the market unfinished. Yeah, so that was actually an interesting conversation that I had off the air with Adam today a little bit, and we're going to do it on Friday for our live. So the day this episode airs, we're going to have another live with Adam from Mind Pump at 3 p.m. At 3 p.m., yep. So if you're hearing this early in the morning and you want to catch a little bit more of this and a little more live color and some Q&A, we're going to definitely do that. You should tune in. It's 3 p.m. That being said, yeah. There's a lot of that being listed right now. There's a couple mm-hmm. properties that I've seen recently in California. I've seen a couple in the Midwest where people are just saying, you know what? It's not economically viable for me to finish this right now. Right. It's costing me a lot more money. Rates are going up. I'm paying, I'm, putting, I'm spending this money every single and, month. And, you, and if you recall during COVID when the cost of a lot of the supplies were going up, that it was still economically viable for them to continue on and try to complete the projects because- home prices were still going on the way up and they mm-hmm. were still able to, you know, have some overturn and generate a profit. But now they're, they're just completely bowing out. Yeah. So look at it from the perspective of, of the home builder, right? So your, your cost of labor has gone up, right? Just getting contractors there is expensive. Mm-hmm. Your cost of actual product, your lumber, your steel, everything gone up. Your carrying costs. Your carrying costs of the property, interest rates have risen and gone up. Mm-hmm. Your interest reserve for your construction loan has gone up if you have one. Right. Or if you're borrowing for off a line of credit or something like that, it's gone mm-hmm. up. It's adjustable. It's indexed plus margin. Right. And now your home value is going the other way. Right. Even if you do finish it, so who, it's not going to be worth what you so thought it was. What, it, what do you think? Because, you know, that number hasn't fallen off completely to like, let's say, 80, 90%. What do you think? Luxury homes are still being built? Like, who's still staying around? Well, I think there's some people who are going to finish their construction projects. So a lot of the larger developers are going to build an entire tracks. Mm-hmm. They're not going to build like one home at a time on spec. They're going to yeah. build this entire track. And then mm-hmm. what they do is as they sell them off, they make more and more profit on the lighter properties that they, right. they sell, right? The ones that are sold later in the game because they have less debt to pay off. But I think you're going to start seeing a lot of that come back. I, I think some of the, the some of the new housing, the affordable housing will still be important. It'll yeah. still be you know, high demand. It'll be there on some level. But 
certainly the higher end homes will start to have some some pullback. There, there's gonna there's always that demographic who will always be willing to pay. Yeah. But I've seen a lot of discounts on even some luxury stuff recently. Yeah. So it depends on where you're at and how big the draw is right there. I mean, some areas in Southern California will always be in demand, like Newport Beach. Yeah. Right? Like some of those areas will always be in demand. Yeah, or areas with really good school districts. Yeah, but some so some of this construction will be around. I mean, no one's going to cut it off in, you know, 100%. Even during the Great Recession, there were people who were still getting loans. But mm-hmm. there's going to be certainly a lot harder to come by for, for qualification purposes, for yes. you know, credit. And you're certainly have to need, you're gonna need a lot more reserves, a lot more liquidity, and you're gonna need a lot more sophisticated, if you will, to get into this. You're not gonna be mm-hmm. like a first time person, but they'll be out there. I would imagine banks are really starting to tighten up it in that department as well. I right? know a number of banks who've just shut down construction yeah. in, in total right now. Yeah. Uh, especially in our local area. So it it doesn't surprise me and it's it's getting more and more challenging. But I do expect to see these numbers continue to fall a little bit. I don't think it's gonna be as dramatic a fall off as things like, for example, mortgage applications, because there's still gonna be people that are building, but it's definitely a hard landing for housing. Mm-hmm. It's a real hard, tough landing for housing. And that should not be too much of a surprise to anybody. But what I will say is that all these things are really to set all of us up for the context of what I want to discuss next. Yep. A Fortune article came out, and I got into some of the details here. It's uh, Moody's Home Prices. So Moody's Home Prices to crash in... I'm sorry, let me rephrase. Mm-hmm. Before I get into this, I want to give you the title... I want to give you the facts, but then I'm going to tell you that I've got a major bone to pick with this article. Okay. Okay, so this from Moody's. Home prices to crash 20% in Nashville. Here's the revised forecast for the nation's 322 largest housing markets. Damn, calling out Nashville. So, yeah, it went hard at Nashville. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a very bold title, right? And they're, yeah. they're saying, essentially, this is a doom and gloom title. Right. And I want to make sure that people understand, part of the reason we do this show is because we don't want to have this level of bias that's out there. Yep. This is one of those articles that is completely written wrong. Really? Okay. So let's read some quotes and then I'll explain. Okay. So this week we learned that slumped home construction subtracted 1.37 percentage points from the U.S. GDP in the third quarter. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest housing contraction since 2007. Meanwhile, mortgage purchase applications are down 41.8% on a year-over-year basis. Total mortgage purchase applications are now lower than any point during the Great Recession. Okay. I thought that was a pretty big statement. Yeah. That's very that would be very telling. Right. So we still had more more mortgage activity during the height of the Great Recession, which is the second largest recessionary economy from the Great Depression to yes. that yeah. that we've ever experienced. Yep. So that that's very telling. Mm-hmm. That could be, I mean you can read into this how you want. That could mean to suggest that what we're walking into maybe one of the largest, if not the largest recessionary economies we've ever experienced. If Something breaks. If something, exactly. Something will have to break or collapse, right? So as of Friday, the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate sat at Mm 7.08%. Remember that number when we continue this conversation? That's going to be important. Okay? 7.08%. Yep. So prior to October, the U.S. had not seen a seven-handle mortgage rate since 2002. Which is not during the Great Recession. Not during the Great Recession. So that goes to show you that... These high interest rates yeah. aren't necessarily driving the mortgage demand drop off entirely. Right. Right. During the Great Recession, I think you had a larger drop off that wasn't based on rates. But now when you combine that with rates, you now have a larger drop off in aggregate. Yep. Right. Right. So I think that that's kind of the, the confusing thing. Now, so I'm going to go on to quote Mark Zandi here. Okay. Not a big fan after he, he snubbed us a little he's, bit on the show. He's just, uh, yeah. We can't call him a friend of the program. Not a friend of the program. But we would like to. We're extending out an invite. We did. Yeah. 
and now I shall rescind said invite. <laughs> but you will see why. Bastard. <laughs> I raised my mortgage forecast and thus lowered my outlook for home sales, home building, and home prices. I was expecting mortgage rates to average 5.5% through next year's spring selling season. What? Now I think it's much more likely to be closer to 6.5%. That hurts demand and home building and home prices. Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, tells Fortune. Wait, but when when was this article written? This is just recently. This, this, is, came out this, this week. This came out this week. This week. So, I mean, rates are already above that. <laughs> he's talking about next spring's season, right? So he's really talking about March, April, right? He's talking about the Fed pivot and it's starting to come back down. And he's starting to talk about an average of 6.5%. Yeah, that's not going to happen, Chief. That is so widely... Di- First of all, right now, we're already at 7%. Same article quotes that. Yeah. Okay, over 7%. Mm-hmm. We've talked in the last live with Adam on the show, a number of shows, including the last one where we talked about that. that's very likely to be an 8 9 or even 10% handle. Easy. Easily. 100%. So if that's where we're going to move, mm-hmm. and that's where the economy's going, he's calling home prices to crash 20% in places like Nashville. In some of these major markets, mm-hmm. if his number is even one percentage point wrong, he's like 10, 15% off where the, these pullbacks in value are going to be. Oh, yeah. Big time. Big time. So also, another point that we, we got to mention is this episode is dropping on Friday, um, November 4th. So on Wednesday, it'll be day two of the FOMC meeting, and that's when Uncle Jerome Powell comes out and hands out the 75 basis point rate hike that we predicted. Mm-hmm. To put that also in perspective, that'll we're currently at 3.25%. He's going to raise it 75 basis points. We're already on record saying that he's going to raise it another 50 basis points. So the market still needs to adjust for those rate hikes. So in what world does Mr. Mark Zandi think that the rates are going to come back down? Because they've also mentioned that they're going to hold those rate hikes for quite some time to see how everything shakes out. So I have in front of Said and I a printout from the Bloomberg terminal uh, that, that we have access to. And Bloomberg is not something that I can provide a link to, so I apologize to everybody in advance. So you're going to have to use your creative imaginations, but I'm going to give you a clear enough description as to what we're looking at so mm-hmm. that you have an idea. Yeah, it looks like something out of the Matrix. <laughs> it's, 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 it's like DOS prompt is what it is. <laughs> yeah. But effectively, the first line of this says there's a meeting, a Fed meeting, an FOMC meeting on 11-2-2022. Yeah. Just like we talked about. Now you'll see it says percentage of hike cut, and it says 300.1%. Uh-huh. That is not a 300% probability. For every 100%, it's 25 basis points. Got it. So what they're saying is there's effectively a 75 basis point is their prediction increase on 11 to 2022. Yep. So if you look at the next meeting, though, 12-14-2022, mm-hmm. at 236.4%, they're saying it's going to be a 50 basis point increase. Right. At that meeting. Right. Now, on the next meeting in February, on February 1st of 2023, they're saying it's 138.3% probability, which is a 25 basis point increase. Yep. Now, these numbers tend to to be somewhat in flux over time, but they have not been wrong this close to the next FOMC meeting in the last, frankly, in all the the recent increases. Right. This close to it, they've never never been wrong. So. I, I mean, 75% at this point is a guarantee. If it doesn't come out of 75%, um, I would be mm-hmm. completely shocked. Right. But 
let's look at the 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 March twenty second, twenty twenty three. This is the spring season that Zandy was talking about. Right. It's a plus forty three point seven percent. So not a full twenty five basis points, but not really less than that. I think that's where they begin to hold and see how everything plays out. And it's kind of suggesting that, and all the rest of the meetings they have all the way through, and it goes to negative fifty one point seven by the ne- by the November first, twenty twenty three. So effectively one year from now. Yeah. These negative numbers imply holding rates. Yes. So nothing that Bloomberg shows from now, 11-2-2022, yeah. all the way to 11 one mm-hmm. indicates a rate cut at all. No, no. Yeah. They haven't they haven't done all this to now backtrack so quickly. Like you said, they're not going to want that that much level of uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. Um so they have they're going to they're going to on November 2nd Jerome Powell is going to come out and not only raise the 75 basis points, but he's also, like he has in the past, he's going to deliver a plan of attack on how they plan on moving forward. And you can pretty much guess that they're going to go 50 basis points and another 25 basis points in February. So I think everyone except for J.P. Morgan Chase, and J.P. Morgan Chase has the Fed target rate at 4.75, but I expect them to revise that actually probably tomorrow. Yeah. But everybody else has them at 5. At 5. At 5. 5 is the Fed target rate for right now mm-hmm. so that, that goes to show you that these pivots are are, are going to happen yeah. I, I think it's, it's just a universal consensus here mm-hmm. and while i was at the bloomberg terminal i pulled out some different numbers that i thought were important and you and that you everybody else out there can't see this but saeed can but i'll read you the more this most important thing the two things the fed looks at the the largest indicators of the fed uh change in non-farm payroll mm-hmm. were very positive right the the anticipated was 191k we got 263k yeah so you you can tell that's that right. It's strong numbers, right? So right. we actually went down as far as the numbers go, and it's not moving the right direction. And the other thing to look at is here the unemployment rate, three point six percent. Right. So uh, and that's the other thing to look out for. So when this episode drops Friday, yesterday on Thursday, the new jobless claims number will come out, and then more importantly than that, the October jobs report will also be dropping on Friday, which will be very telling. That's something that the Fed's really going to look at. But again, nothing that we've seen so far has been a big movement in any of these numbers. No, no, exactly. I mean, the unemployment rate's still at three and a half percent, and that's that hasn't moved very much. And they're looking at that number to go up. Mm-hmm. So, if, well, and that's what they're saying here is they're looking at it going from three point five to three point six percent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, if, if that's the anticipated survey, but that, that's, that's still not enough. That we're we're talking about things maybe potentially going in the right direction, but they these things need to swing. Well, look here. So it says the change in non-farm payroll to 263K. Yeah. Right? Down to 191. Yeah. Not a big pivot. No, not. You know, the, the change from 3.5 to 3.6% in unemployment rate, not a big pivot. Right. So what what's going to deter the Fed now? What What's going to back them off doing this? Exactly. Nothing. No, they're, they're going to need, we talked about it, I think, on the last episode or the episode before that. That one of three. Damn, you don't remember our episodes one, now? One of three things. Damn. One of three things needs to happen. There either needs to be a huge change in the unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. They need to see inflation going down and on its way to their target rate of 2%. And, or there needs to be a collapse in, in some form of the financial market, right? So we're not seeing any of that. Mm, no, we're not. But while I was going through this and I was thinking about those three things, mm-hmm. I had I had this moment where I was flashing back to the Great Recession. Okay. Now, I was actually going in right when the Great Recession was really creeping up and beginning. Yeah. I was going in for interviews at Lehman Brothers. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. I didn't it, know this. There, there was one in Foothill Ranch where there was an office there that I went and, and interviewed with. And I wanted to get taking the job at Impact. And that's kind of yeah. how the career trajectory went. But I went into Lehman Brothers. And I remember interviewing there and talking to people. And then the week later, they were gone. Wow. Look I mean, at it, that. It, was, it was impactful. And I started thinking about Lehman Brothers. And I started thinking no about all No pun intended. Stuff. Impactful. Ah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I didn't get that until just now. You're so special. <laughs> uh, I started thinking about some of the stuff that I'm hearing in the news. And I, I remember Credit Suisse is, they're, they're a massive, massive bank, right? They're having a huge amount of trouble. And I'm going to read some of the stuff that I pulled down from an article uh, titled Credit Suisse to raise $4 billion to fund sweeping overhaul. Wow. Basically, uh, Credit Suisse uh, took its most dramatic step to repair the bank, unveiling a fresh plan that we will see a multi-billion dollar capital raise. Capital raises are, are interesting when you're in the banking space. Like you don't want to do it when your value is too low. Like for example, where Credit Suisse is, but if you need to, you need to. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to take on some debt to, to try to, to try to fix things. But you're taking on debt where your stock price is lower, so you're just not getting the leverage that you would normally get. Do we know some of the missteps that they that they took to get themselves in this position? That it's been a lot. It's been really? a long storied history of, really? of failures. But uh, suffice it to say. There's some strategic missteps on their part. They made some bad bets, but generally speaking, if you're in like the spaces that they're in and you take some credit risk, credit is the number one thing that takes down banks. Yeah, yeah of course. They've had some regulatory issues and some credit issues and it all has kind of coalesced into them having big problems. Mm -hmm. And frankly, there's a confidence problem, which is what we're um, really getting to here. Mm -hmm. Lehman falling started during the Great Recession, a run on banks because there was a fear that these large banking institutions were not going to be around. If Lehman can close their doors, who else is going to close exactly. their doors? Exactly, right. And if you remember from previous episodes, one of the things the Fed hasn't done is increase their reserve requirement for banks to increase their liquidity. Right. Right? For, to offset that loan-to-deposit ratio. It's been set at zero. Mm -hmm. Now, they can increase that number requiring banks to hold more liquidity on their balance sheet for fear of run on banks. Yes. And we talked in the previous episode about how if we don't have some kind of catalyst, it's going to be a slow, long affordability crisis that could go on for a very long time. Right. Credit Suisse may be that catalyst. They're going to get bailed out by the Saudi, Saudi National Bank and, and some other people that are, I mean, the Apollo Group, Pacific Investment Management, that are throwing money at them for this capital raise. Okay. If they fail, they could be like Lehman, where this bank now valued at only $12 billion, with probably $100 billion in assets in the books. Yeah. Which goes to show you how off their valuation is relative to their assets. It's just right. they're not making a lot of money. If they go down, that's that's a tantamount to Lehman in my mind. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, there, there's a lot more international impacts and stuff with a bank like this. But that being said, this could very well turn out to be something that forces the Fed to raise that liquidity number. Right. So there, there's a lot of things that are like this that are out there that are looming. And like, like we, was we that what was was that what was that liquidity number at back during the Great Recession? I don't remember what they increased it to, but it, they they it came up to like above obviously zero yeah, percent. Yeah. I think it was like one percent or something like that. They, okay. Because you're only you're requiring banks to hold extra capital on their balance sheet, exactly above and beyond their their regulatory requirements. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a really tough burden to put on banks because now you can't deploy that capital, you can't make money with right. it. So yeah. it's tough to put on the banks. But if the banks are fearing that you know people are going to run have a run the liquidity and the deposit is mm -hmm. going to go out and they're loaning that money out, and and there's way stricter guidelines now, right? There is, especially for the lending side, uh, which is where the real risk is, and people lose confidence when banks are losing money. But I'll tell you, right now, I mean, we talked about it at the beginning, top of the show, right? You have the mortgage industry that's been hit hard. You've got the real estate industry that's been hit hard. Mm -hmm. 
banks are going to get real pinched because as this liquidity is drawn out of, drawn out of the system, mm-hmm. right? Banks are going to struggle for deposits and banks make money off of lending out those deposits. Well, if you want to continue your trajectory of lending, yes. you got to find a way to bring deposits in. Mm-hmm. But now the pool of banks that are out there and the lenders that are out there are fighting for the same pool of deposits, which is shrinking drastically. I, I know, because I know what some banks do in the past is if it, that number gets too much, what they'll, they'll start to do is pull a bunch of loans together and then sell them off to the secondary market. But, but you now you get to now. a point you can't, you can't do that, right? Because the reason why is you're not making money. Exactly. Right, you're selling loans into a market at 7%. Let's say the average rate is, and let's say you're selling 30-year mortgage backs or 30-year mortgage loans. And your rate in the last year that you've aggregated has probably got a weighted average coupon of, I'll call it 4% if you're lucky, 5%. Right. That's 2 3% below current market. Right. So you're going to sell that at a discount. Mm-hmm. So you're going to sell it for you know a percentage point or two less than you actually owe on it. So now you're taking a loss economically. Right. That isn't going to help anybody. Mm-hmm. So all this to to kind of set a preface and a tone for I thought some history would be valuable here, and it came about in in the research for the show. I was looking at another comment that my favorite. A former former FOMC head Janet Yellen mm-hmm. said. Now Janet Yellen is not a dumb lady. No, she's got a great pedigree. She's got a, a wonderful education. She's a, is a, a respected economist. Right. Just not super respected by me on some level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She, well, at least at least she was one of the ones that walked it back. So for for those that are listening that don't know who Janet Yellen is, she served as a 15th chair for the Federal Reserve from 2014 to 2018. Currently serving as the United States Secretary of Treasury. Um, so what she has to say does, in fact, matter. It does matter, but I would say that, well, let's get into this quote from Fortune. So the article was, Janet Yellen said she doesn't see signs of a recession, but Nobel laureate Paul Krugman argues the worst is yet to come. Mm-hmm. I don't really like Paul Krugman either. Right. Okay, but this article was interesting because it positioned the two of them against one another, and I think they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. So the U.S. economy has continued to weaken, but once again, the top-line GDP number is hiding some of its weaknesses, Raymond James, chief economist, I uh, can't say his name, told Fortune, pointing to the fact that GDP was boosted by 2.8%, 2.8%, 2.8% owing to the shrinking trade deficit last quarter. Right. That is dead-ass accurate. Yeah. So and we're going to see that go away as the dollar's you know super valuation against everybody else's currencies tends to level out you know equal yeah. out a little bit. And we uh, we talked about on the last episode where some of that some of the reason why that GDP number was actually going up was that there was a lot of government spending. Exactly. So I think this this GDP bump was not something to get your confidence up in. And frankly, if you want to get real conspiracy theorist on this, you could argue that it was done in part to make sure that we didn't have a third GDP negative number. So they don't wouldn't have to come out the gate and declare at, at that point you, you got your hand in the cookie jar it's a recession yeah, yeah right this point it's still somewhat speculative based right. on everybody's attempt to redefine what a recession is comerica bank's chief economist bill adams explained that a quote smaller trade deficit adds to gdp because it means more american spending is on goods and services produced here versus in other countries mm. another rock star perspective yeah shout out to bill adams right yeah, yeah. bill yeah notice <laughs> i haven't quoted janet yellen and i haven't quoted krugman yet <laughs> so nobel laureate paul krugman here we go also argued on thursday that while the u.s may not currently be in a recession mm-hmm. there is evidence that the economy will shrink from here okay i'm gonna be a dick mm-hmm. we we're first of all we are in a recession yes thank you paul 
Nobel yeah. laureate. Yeah. This is why you get the Nobel, Saeed. Yeah. <laughs> Every single time. <laughs> Hashtag Nobel. Hashtag Nobel. But I mean, look, okay, fine. You want to say we're not in a recession. Okay, we'll play this, you know, Mickey Mouse weird game. Yeah. But at this point, it's just a technicality. The economy is going to shrink from here. Yeah, yeah. The last two quarters before this bullshit GDP number didn't count as shrinkage. Right. Shrinkage. <laughs> it's technically the right word. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There's all kinds of shrinkage going on all during this kinds conversation. Of <laughs> Everybody's on testosterone. Too personal. <laughs> but I'm sitting here looking at this like, and I'm laughing like, this guy won a Nobel. Right. And he's like, it's only shrinkage from here. And I'm like, the last two, six months, right. last two quarters were negative. Right. And because of this small, small GDP positive print, which we can literally attribute to the trade deficit, we can attribute to things like goods and services, you know, produced here versus in other countries and th stuff. I mean, clearly defined right. by two good economists, Comerica Bank and Raymond James, two good economists. Right. One of which whose names I can't, I'll say his name, fuck, I can't pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, Raymond James, the chief economist, was Eugenio... Alemon, Alemon. It's got a tilde over the yeah. A, so it's supposed to be all, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, smart guy. Right. So these two guys are saying there's an excuse for this, and yet this Nobel Prize laureate guy was like, hey, you know what? It's going to shrink from here. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. This is why Saeed gets the Nobel. Yeah, yeah. Captain Obvious. Okay. Yeah, Captain <laughs> Obvious. But the article goes on to be even more articulate. While this report made all the people who screamed recession the higher standard pocket. look as foolish and partisan as they were, it was not. If you look under the hood, a sign that the worst is over, he wrote on Twitter. Oh, geez. Yeah. It suggests, at least to me, that there's a lot of contraction still in the pipeline. Mm. In a separate tweet, Krugman, like the chief economist at Raymond James, whose name I can't pronounce, argued that the shrinking trade deficit was the main driver for the positive GDP figure and that the strong dollar should reduce the benefits of the trade deficit in coming quarters as U.S. production becomes less competitive on the global stage. Yep. Translated loosely, mm. Saeed Omar gets the goddamn Nobel Give me that Prize. Nobel, goddammit. But Janet Yellen was critical, basically saying that she felt that that we're over to we're over the the tough part of this. Yeah. We're, we're we're through the tough part, and and now everything that we're going through is going to see the 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 economy going the other way. The GDP is turning, and yeah. And now yeah. the the Fed is going to be forced to back off this crazy hawkish. Interest rate increasing I cycle. I don't. I really. I really don't understand because she was. She was with, on board with Jay Powell from the beginning, say that this was going to be transitory, and then walked it back. Let's talk about her walking this back. But yeah. before, let's take a little flashback down memory lane. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Janet Louise Yellen, <laughs> born August thirteenth, nineteen forty-six, is an American economist serving as the seventy-eighth United States Secretary of the Treasury since January twenty-six, twenty twenty-one. She previously served as the 15th chair of the Federal Reserve from 2014 to 2018, doing exactly what Jerome Powell is doing now. Right. Which goes to show you how crazy different perspective you can have in somebody in that position. Right. Right? Yellen is the first woman to hold each of those posts and the first person to have led the White House Council of Economic Advisors, the Federal Reserve, and the Treasury Department. Oh, flex, Janet. Not an idiot and clearly a pioneer. Shout out to her. Yeah. But she's fucking wrong. Wrong. Okay, wrong. Dead ass wrong. Dead ass wrong. So I took a little trip down memory lane mm -hmm. and said, you know what? She's a good economist. Her husband's a good economist, got a great educational pedigree, clearly has a resume. She's a rock star. How can somebody so smart be so wrong? Yeah. And then I found the article from June that I had already read. And I, thought, I was like, oh, that's how. I, yeah. I remember talking yeah. about her back then. Yeah. Because you were laughing at her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a quote from June 1st, 2022. As I mentioned, there have been 
unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted energy and food prices and supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that I, at the time, didn't fully understand, but we recognize now, Yellen said. Mm. Mm. So you didn't see this coming, and it surprised you, and now here you are again on the precipice of another bad economy, not seeing it coming. Yeah. Do I got to wait six months to get this statement again? You know what's crazy about all this is, you know, everyone at the FOMC that got this wrong, Janet Young getting this wrong, now so many people have to lose their jobs and will be losing their jobs. I just thought about this or not, in 2023, and not a single one of them is going to lose a job. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, no like, yeah, I don't care. We got it wrong. Sorry, guys. This is the part about being an economist that sucks, right? Like, if you get it right, you're amazing. If you get it wrong, they hate you. But the the end of the day, you're still an economist. No one's going to fire you. You know what? Hey, Janet, you got that prediction wrong? <laughs> you're out. Yeah. Like, but, I mean, this is a global fuck-up. Yeah, well, everybody got this wrong. But let's go, let's go into a little bit more history, shall we? Mm-hmm. Yellen's statement appeared to be a symptom of a deep political hole facing the White House five months before the midterm elections. Mm. Okay. This is in June, five months from effectively now. Right. Right. Telling Americans that the economy is strong. Ugh. There are 8.3 million new jobs and inflation should be lower by the end of the year isn't working for President Joe Biden. Damn. So she has been a Democrat. Yes. Her entire career. Mm-hmm. And this is the bias that somebody in her position who is smart who's educated, who's got the experience, who's who has been the, in the resume. White House. Yeah, she has the resume. So her her voice, people people listen to what she has to say. And for her to come out and say that, she, and I mean, have have some integrity. You served as the Fed chair. Yeah, you did. She she actually endorsed Jerome Powell before she became super critical of him after he worked, saying that he was too focused on policy and not enough on everything else. And it was like, okay, well, look, bro, like he doesn't have to serve the same way you did. Right. And clearly, you both got this wrong and didn't see it coming. Yeah, exactly. Powell, Powell's not innocent here either. Yeah. I mean, he was a year, t- year t- too late to act. But that being said, I mean, come on, lady. I mean, it, 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 from her perspective, it definitely seems a little bit it has more bias to it. You know? Which because she's, she's a Democrat. Well, and she's, and, and she's a she's, Democrat in office. She's serving under Biden's administration. And I want to be clear. It, I don't care which side of the aisle you fall on, Democrat, Republican, Harry Toad, not Harry Toad. I don't care. <laughs> what I'll say is is... I understand that everything has been charged politically and it's very polar and there's reasons that people want to side with other people, but our jobs are not to do that. Our jobs are to be clear, to be clear, to be communicative and to do the things that we can do to help in her case, the treasury, right? To help the fed get their jobs done. Mm-hmm. You've got to be open-minded enough to speak against your party when they're trying to do things like win a midterm election. Yes. Not be truthful about the economy. Right. Yep. So, that's me being magnanimous. And that's probably going to be my acceptance speech when you get the Nobel. <laughs> that's, oh, yeah. like, I'm going to accept this foresight and here's why. <laughs> yeah. Somehow my invitation gets lost in the mail. So there is going to be, and if you don't subscribe to the, the uh, newsletter that we have for the show, mm-hmm. I recommend it because we can't always get all the links on the show notes because Apple and Spotify limit us as far as text go. Yeah. So if you actually subscribe to the newsletter, you'll probably get more of the links than we can provide in that space. Mm-hmm. That being said, and somehow you get more if you leave a five star review. It's crazy how it that is works more. out. More, we know. Yeah, it's and crazy. because of that, you get more. Yeah. just food for thought. Yeah. If you're you know out there, if you want more, stuff. I mean, you don't want more. Why yeah. wouldn't you want more? Everybody wants more. Yeah, exactly. Even Janet Yellen. 
<laughs> There's an article that we're going to read from, and I don't normally do a lot of reading, at least not to this extent, but this one was really, really good. Saeed even took the liberty of reading half of it before taking the kids trick-or-treating because today is Halloween. Today is Halloween, yeah. So this article from The Atlantic, how did they get inflation so wrong? Mm. Yes, the stimulus was too big, but that's not the main reason prices are through the roof. Awesome article. You should read it. This is actually somewhat dated. It's not like a super recent article, but I think it described the history very, very well. Right. It does a nice recap. Nice recap. But some of that I think is important for us to talk about on the show since Saeed is listening and looking me dead in the eyes, <laughs> dead yes. in my orbits. <laughs> yeah. Are you ready? Yeah, go for it. You sure you got this? This is a lot of reading. This is a lot of reading. This is a lot of reading for you. I, I predict let's go over under two fumbles. It's over under two fumbles? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's probably going to be over. Let's just let's get that out of the way right now. <laughs> that she was. That she was. Fumble one, fumble two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. In March 2021, I, I'm, I feel the pressure on me. It's not fair. Don't look, look <laughs> that way. Over. Look that way. I no, no, I got it. Over. I got it. Okay. Shut up. Right. In March 2021, when inflation hawks were arguing that the Biden administration's $1.9 trillion stimulus plan was going to be going to overheat the economy, Yellen called the risk of inflation, quote, small and, quote, manageable. And a couple of months later said, and I'm quoting again, I don't anticipate that inflation is going to be a problem, end quote. She wasn't alone. For much of 2021, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said that he thought inflation would be, quote, transitory, end mm. quote. And even as inflation rose above 6%, the Fed kept interest rates near zero. Its first interest rate hike was not until March of 2022. Mm -hmm. And we know what's happened since then until now, and we know what's going to happen on the 2nd. Yes, on Wednesday. The simple answer to that first question is that the Biden administration and the Fed were, in some sense, fighting the last war, that being, in this case, the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. After the steep economic downturn over those two years, the U.S. economy grew at a very slow clip. From 2009 to 2016, GDP growth averaged about 2% per year. Mm -hmm. Unemployment, which reached nearly 11% in October 2009, was still above 7% four years later, while the median wages rose only slowly. So I think that's a good emphasis point. Mm -hmm. Our unemployment got to 11% and was on the way back down when we declared this effectively the end of the recession. It still peaked a little bit after the end yeah, of the Yeah, we talked about recession. it. It's, it's, its peak was actually after we declared it over. Right. It went down four percentage points to 7% four years later. Crazy. That's a percent a year. Yeah. That's double where we're at now. Yeah. So ju just to be clear, that's how long it takes to move unemployment, which yes. is what the Fed is looking to. So again, unless there's something drastic that, that changes, mm -hmm. we're looking at a very slow, long, painful process. Yeah. And I don't think people have really come to appreciate it. And this is a great look backward to look forward. Right. So two more paragraphs, and I won't fumble the bag a whole bunch more, I promise. In concrete terms... This meant that tens of millions of Americans had a miserable five years or more. It's funny how we don't remember it that way. Right. But it's true. And this happened even though policymakers had done quite a lot, or so it seemed then, to get the economy back on track. Democrats had passed a $787 billion stimulus plan, which at the time was the biggest such package ever enacted. Mm -hmm. And the Fed, under Ben Bernanke, Shout out to Bernanke. Yeah, Mr. Had, my fellow Nobel winner. For, former Nobel winner. Had slashed interest rates to near zero and kept them there. 
while also trying to inject more money into the economy by buying up a wide range of assets in what was called quantitative easing, mm -hmm. the exact opposite of what yeah. we're going through now Letting as quantitative more money into tidying. the system. Yes. These measures did keep the Great Recession from becoming another Great Depression, but it wasn't until 2016 that the economy really took off. Wow. So that's a full like seven years later. So we never really got out of the bad economy. We got into the slow, slow growth phase. Mm -hmm. And then it just superheated up in 2016. In the last five years, if you're taking real estate as a proxy, we often talk about. Right. And you look at home prices. And you can, you can Google this. You can look this up anywhere, anytime you want. You can go to any of the, any of the feds, fed websites and look this up. And basically... It's like a hockey stick up. The last yeah. five years have been ridiculous. The last and two has been forty five percent increase on I mean, value. Think about it, for how long interest rates were at near zero percent. I mm -hmm. mean, you're getting borrowing free money. But and that that's the perspective that I think people miss. Everybody who's like, oh my god, and we talked about at the very beginning of the year. People were saying at the end of the year, the Fed's going to have to back out policy and drop rates because it's going to shock the economy. Yeah. Clearly, they do not give a shit at this point about people's perspective of dropping the stock market. Right, exactly. Right? That is not the thing they're worried about. It's already breaking. down 20, 25%, and Uncle Jamie Dimon is already predicting another 20. Yeah, and I think that's probably accurate, but what I'm saying is this belief that, that we're going to get to some point and the Fed's going to go, okay, we're going to back off. This slow, painful progression, mm -hmm. this is not new. This is history. right. Yeah. This is how long it takes. Exactly. So one last paragraph from this article, which I think you should do yourself a favor, read the whole article if you get the time. It is a very, very good recap, but I'm only giving you kind of the highlights. Mm -hmm. The lesson that policymakers drew from that experience was that if you wanted to get the economy moving and keep it moving, you needed to err on the side of going big. You remember when we read the quote that the risk of doing too little yes. was outweighed by the risk of doing too much? Right. How goddamn similar does that sound yeah, to that? Identical almost. I'm going to read it again. The lesson that policymakers drew from that experience was that if you wanted to get the economy moving and keep it moving, you needed to err on the side of going big. Yeah, and that's keep it moving whether you want it moving down or moving it up. Exactly. When Biden entered office in January 2021, unemployment remained stubbornly high at 6.3%. Although the economy had bounced back sharply from the depths of the pandemic-induced recession, thanks in large part to the 2020 stimulus package, the recovery in the job market seemed to have stalled. Mm -hmm. The economy actually lost jobs in December 2020. For the new administration, that raised the spe uh, specter that it might be facing a repeat of the post-2009 recovery with millions of people out of work for years to come. Mm. So I like this article for a number of reasons. It highlights that you can't blame the Democrats. You can't blame the Republicans. Mm -hmm. This has been a saga that has gone on through at least three, if not four presidencies prior to this. Right. You've got a number of different Fed secretaries have had their hands on this. Mm -hmm. You can't blame Bernanke. You can't blame Powell. You can't blame Yellen. This in aggregate is the lifetime work of several presidencies of all political parties we, we will let this continue on and we, we lose sight of, of the perspective of just a couple of years. Exactly. That's the point that I was trying, I was going to make is just look back at any part, any difficult part in your own lives, right? You think back to it, it's such a short period of time. You forget how long or how painful some of those things were. And it it's just, you, you, you don't remember how long everyone had to go through to get through to the other side. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, just, that's human behaviors, right? Yeah, I mean, we're exactly. Just, we're, as humans, you, you want to see the rosy positive stuff. Mm -hmm. If you don't remember that tough surgery you had, you're just happy that you got through it. Or if, for some people, they were lucky enough to where they weren't impacted as long. Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a, a happier topic. Let's move on to, because this is Halloween. Okay. I thought, let's talk about a lot of people making money who happen to be dead. <laughs> right? Seems like a totally perfect thing for us to talk about on Halloween. When you hear this, it won't be Halloween, but yeah. you know, an article came out and I was like, you know what? Dead people, scary Halloween. That makes yeah, sense. Still making some bread. Yes. Yeah, making some bread. So according to Forbes, this is the list of highest paid dead celebrities of 2022. Oh. A writer earns half a billion from the great beyond. Oh man. Right. One of them really broke my heart. One of them really broke your heart. Well, we all know who that's going to be. So why yeah. spoil the surprise? Number one on the list J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Lord of the Rings, right? I have no idea. I didn't watch any of Lord of the Rings. What the shit? Yeah. I, I didn't watch any of like, the second saga. I, you know what? Fuck it. I can't even say that I claim. I can't even claim now having watched it because of how long it's been since, yeah. since I did any of it. But, but he clearly crushed it. Clearly crushed it. So I'm going to read a little bit. Swedish video game company Embracer announced its acquisition of Middle Earth Enterprises in August. They didn't disclose... The deal price, instead opting to share, they'd spent $788 million on six acquisitions, including Tolkien. Mm. But one clever hobbit told Forbes that Embracer spent at least $500 million for Middle Earth Enterprises, a number Embracer didn't refute. Mm. After the deal closes, Embracer will share the Shire. There's a lot of really corny lines in here. Shout out to this writer. Yeah. <laughs> good, good for you. With a multitude of other companies who will own the pieces of the Tolkien intellectual property, including HarperCollins, Amazon, Warner Brothers, New Line, and the Tolkien estate in what's been described as the most complex IP split in history. Mm. Half a billion dollars for a dead dude. He died on September 2nd, 1973, 81 years old. Man, imagine what that Survivor's Trust looks like. Number two, hold your breath, buddy. Yeah, Keep it man. together. Keep it together. Deep breaths. I'll have to leave the studio. On this Yoga one. breathing. Yeah. The estate of Kobe Bryant passed away at the age of 41 years old in a helicopter crash on January 26, 2020. Mm. So he's got his eyes closed and looking down. I appreciate you, brother. Mm -hmm. This is a childhood hero for you. Yes, it was. Late LA Lakers legend had a 7% stake in the Body Armor Energy Drink and served on the company's board prior to his 2020 death. In November 2021, Coca-Cola agreed to buy out 70% of Body Armor, and it didn't already own the 5.6. And it didn't no, already own the 5.6 billion no, at the time. Buy I, out I, the 70% that they didn't already own. Okay, yeah, I can't, I can't yeah. read. It, I'm just so sad. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah, it's so sad. At an eight billion dollar valuation, Brian's estate received a reported 400 million dollars in proceeds from the sale. Yeah, I remember when when he did get that deal, I, and I, I thought to myself, like, really, bro, body armor? Like, you didn't go the Gatorade route? Yeah, I thought that was weird too. Yeah. but apparently we're idiots. And then I didn't know actually. Uh, this I didn't know that he was he served on the board, and then. Um, it's probably how they got a, a bunch. They had a bunch of big name athletes come on board. You know how he didn't get the the, the board seat? He didn't demand to be on it because he was about twenty percent of their sales, like Kanye West did. Mm. Yeah, you don't you don't get it that way, brother. Yeah, not yeah. like that. Which, so, by the way, I think he's getting canceled from everybody now. So he is getting canceled. Yeah. Oh, there's not been a canceled hashtag yet. I want to. See, I won't believe he's truly canceled until cancel Kanye yeah, or cancel Ye is, is a hashtag out. trending. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, let the people speak. Yeah. You know. Exactly. Twitter. Twitter. We'll, talk, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> so J.R.R. Tolkien, five hundred million dead. Kobe Bryant, four hundred million dead. Mm. Number three did not see coming. Did not see it. Shocker. 
David Bowie died mm. January 10th, 2016 at 69 years old. Stud. Is there life on Mars? The thin white duke famously asked on 1971's Hunky Dory. I read that and I thought, what the fuck? <laughs> Hunky Dory? I don't know. That's what we're going with? We still don't know. No worries. Elon Musk is working on it, but the sale of David Bowie's publishing catalog and masters to Warner Chapel in January generated enough income to make Major Tom jealous to the tune of $250 million. Oh, his entire catalog? Yeah. Jeez. $250 million. Died of cancer. Mm. Man. Man. I mean, I know that's something that was actually in the news. That's something that, that Kanye was catching a lot of heat for, too. To take it back to Kanye, what was that? He was the one that in uproar, like I want my masters. You know, he wanted yeah, he yeah, wanted yeah, to have all the publishing that, yeah. rights, but then all the people signed under him to Good Music were didn't have their masters. Yeah, yeah. and he wasn't giving it to them. Like, yeah. what are we doing here? Yeah. Hypocritical basis, brother. Yeah. So another recording artist made number four. This one also shocked me. Died at forty two years old. That blew me away. He was my age when he died. That's crazy. Yeah, they look completely different than this photo. I. Yeah, yeah, he was fat. Yeah. The one and only Elvis Presley died of a heart attack on August 16th, 1977 at the ripe old age of 42 years old. The king benefited handsomely from COVID, cooped up tourists ready to treat themselves to a vacation at his Graceland mansion and resort. At least 80 million of Presley's earnings came from tour tickets, shows, and merch, mm. according to sources close to the estate. The estate didn't make a ton directly off the Smash Elvis biopic, but the hit film is expected to lift Presley's earnings for at least the next 18 months as fans, new and old, look to own their own piece of the king. Mm. Even sales of Disney's Stitch plus animals dressed in Elvis jumpsuits are up from last year. Man, and didn't they recently have a movie come out about him? He made $110 million this year. God damn. Yeah, they referred to the movie in the, in the yeah, quote yeah. that I read that you clearly didn't listen to me read. <laughs> <laughs> tell me you're not. Tell me you're not interested in this shit, Say, Tell me. Tell me you don't want to listen to it. But it's funny that literally talked that the whole Dan, last three sentences I read were all about the movie. David, David, Bo- David Bowie, Elvis Presley, and then the next person, number five. You're gonna move on from this shit. You're not even gonna own it. This is how, this is how, this is how you handle it, right? Wow. James Brown died at 73 of heart failure. Did you know that he was the hardest working man in show business? I did know that. Yeah. 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 Made a hundred million dollars. The hardest working man is still working hard. Made a hundred million dollars last year even though he died literally 16 years ago. Mm. The hardest working man in show business, which is where Saeed got it from, was a quote from the article. which says, <laughs> just keeps working, even though he is dead. Primary Wave, a New York-based independent music publisher, snapped up the godfathers of souls, music rights, real estate, and name and likeness. Brown's estate will reportedly use some of the proceeds to fund academic scholarships for needy children in perpetuity. Number oh, six. That's, that's cool. And uh, we'll, we'll just, I'm going to read the headlines of the rest of them. Number six is the, I recognized how canceled this man was. Yeah, we can't even, I know. You notice like every year in Halloween you heard Thriller. This yeah. year, no Thriller. No Thriller. No Thriller. I, I want to play Kanye stuff on Instagram stuff. Can't do that. You want to play Michael Jackson now? I can't play it anymore. These people are all canceled. Done. You feel weird doing it. Done. But yet, he made $75 million this year, Michael Jackson. Did you watch that documentary? On that, which one? We won't even we won't even get into. Oh, it, Neverland. Was, yeah, yeah, I watched that one. Yeah, yeah. that was that was that was a sad ass. That, yeah. oh, Leonard Cohen died of a fatal fall at the age of eighty-two in November seventh, two thousand sixteen. Made fifty-five million. A fatal fall. God yeah. damn. Yeah. What kind of? How bad was it? I didn't even know who this guy is. Did you? <laughs> no. Okay. No. The well, Hallelujah. Yeah. Whatever. Let's just skip it. Yeah. Doctor Seuss. 
Not a fan, bro. Dr. Seuss? Yeah, hot take. I don't like his stuff. What? Yeah. Cat in the Hat? Cat in the Hat, man. Green Eggs and Ham? I started reading these books to my kids. It was was a little creepy. They're like, what are these things? Come Come on, on, man. (laughs) I'm just telling you. We, we're not, I'm not canceling Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Fuck you. I'm not canceling no, him. No, no, who said canceling him? Why are you creepy? Green I, eggs and ham is not creepy. You're talking about all the words that rhyme? You just can't say it. That's why. <laughs> I know. It's, it's a reading no, comprehension I don't, I, issue. No, no, no. I don't have an issue reading it. You clearly do have an issue <laughs> no, reading it. That's what the, you just said to me. The images in the books actually scare the kids. I feel like it's made for people that are like high and reading it to get some kind of kick out of it. What? Yeah, hot take, dude. Not a fan of Dr. Seuss. So you haven't watched the, the recent Cat in the Hat movie with Mike Myers that Absolute, came out? No, bro, no. It's live action. You didn't watch that? No, you watched it? I watched it like 15 times. My son's watched it with me last week. Yeah? Yeah. And you enjoyed it? it fuck, yeah, it's Mike Myers. I mean, it's always Mike Myers. A little weird, but you know. That's that's my point. It's weird, bro. It's weird. Come, there is so much more weird shit out there. No, man. No. You Not like this. But kids' lives are supposed to be goofy. No, it's a bit much. All right, whatever. He made $32 million last year. Yeah. Not bad for a weird dude. Yeah, not top seven, though. Fucking hater. Yeah. Jeff Porcario (laughs) died of a heart attack in 1992 at the age of 38. I have no fucking clue who this guy is. Zero. I'm going to read it. The drummer for 80s rock outfit Toto doesn't have nearly the same name recognition as the rest of the dead celebs, but while living, he was an industry legend. Did not know that. Yeah, I mean, collaborated with... Let's see, Eric Clapton, Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen. Well, he made uh, $25 million last year, and he looks like a nerd. <laughs> yeah, he looks like an accountant. Charles Schultz, I know mm. him. He made $24 million. Damn. Gosh, Juan Gabriel. Heart attack. 2016, Jeez. $23 million. John Lennon died at the age of 40. I did not know he died at 40. I didn't know that either. Yeah, $16 million. I can go on and on and on. There's a lot more here, but uh, mm. we're going to skip the rest of them. And by a lot more, I mean there's one that we skipped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought that was interesting because it goes to show you that some of these estates that people have really, really seem to continue to make money in perpetuity. That That's the value of building wealth mm-hmm. that we, we don't think about <clears throat> until we see big numbers. Right. Is how, is, like, we speak so much about building wealth and buying real estate and doing things that are smart that we always tend to think about how wealthy am I? Yes. When the real question is, is how much wealth can you leave behind? Right. What legacy are you leaving? These people's families right. are going to be, their whole lives will be different. The trajectory of their, of their family and their, their kids' kids will all be different because the empires they were able to create. Right. And hopefully they can have a nice impact, you know. Well, yeah, and keep in mind, as, as families grow and get bigger over time, you split and split and split, and the money becomes less and less because more people are splitting it. But not for everybody. Right. Not for everybody. The next topic was a different take on a, on a very similar thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I ran into an article by Bloomberg. I, I, maybe I was just going through this money phase or something, but <laughs> these are the world's richest families. Caveat that we know about. That we know about. There are some people in the Saudi world that don't necessarily disclose. There's their a lot of people making a lot of money yeah. from oil. Let me there, tell you that there's much. a lot of people all over the world who don't necessarily want to be on this list. And some of them are not exactly good actors. Some of them are very bad actors. But right. I like this list. A buddy of mine growing up, he came from a very affluent family. Mm-hmm. He always looked at this list and nerded out on it. And I didn't understand it when I was younger. And now that I'm older and more in the financial space and maybe it's just because I consider myself to have a little bit more of an understanding of how money works now. I I like this. I geek out on it. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it'd be interesting to share because a lot of people will will think of like the wealthiest person in the world, but a lot of this has changed recently. Mm. 
So according to this, Walmart is the world's largest retailer by revenue, $573 billion Mm -hmm. from more than 10,500 stores worldwide. The Walton family owns 47% of the retailer, a stake stake that is the the foundation of the world's largest fortune. Jeez. Walton's at number one at $224.5 billion. I remember reading a stat uh, a couple years ago that they were the uh, number one sued entity next to the U.S. government. I believe that. Yeah, I, believe I mean, that. when you're that big, yeah, you're that big. Yeah, they are three generations deep. I yeah. like, I like looking at that. So right here, if you look at it, it little says mm-hmm. three generations. Yeah, for me, that that tells you how good they have been at continuing to perpetrate, not perpetrate, to keep this money moving in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. There, there's was, legacy wealth doesn't always survive. Well, the business has to evolve too, right? Right, and adapt to the times. The next one, the Mars family. Confectionery and pet care mm. seemed like a weird combo, but right. Frank Mars began selling molasses candies in 1902 at the age of 19. The business he went on to create is best known for M&M's, Milky Way, and Snicker bars. Mm. Though pet care products make up about half the company's almost 45 billion in revenue, the closely held business is owned by members of the Mars family. Five generations, 160 billion dollar worth. It's crazy that she's not even, they're not even a household name. Yeah, but she looks like she's had a couple Snicker bars, though. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't help yourself. <laughs> I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> Somebody picked yeah, this photo. That's what was, you get. I mean, they could have picked a better photo. That's yeah, not my bad. You yeah. set me up. Come on, that's the best one whoever, they had. Whoever wrote this did this to themselves. The next one, this guy's been on the list for as long as I can remember as well. Three generations deep, $128.8 billion in wealth. Koch Industries. Mm. Brothers Frederick, Charles, David, and William inherited Father Fred's oil firm. Oh, you inherited an oil oh, firm. Oh, yeah. How hard did you have to work to get that? A fraternal feud over control of the company in the early 1980s led Frederick and William to leave the family business while Charles and David stayed. No way. Oh, so sad. Can you imagine? These, these multi-millionaires decided they were going to part ways because they just didn't agree. Yeah. It has since grown into Koch Industries, a conglomerate with annual revenue of about $125 billion. The family manages a portion of its wealth through a family office named 1888 Management. Mm. Ball so hard. They sold a 340,000-acre lot in Montana? God damn. Yeah, did you know Koch Industries, a matador cattle company, Sold a 340,000-acre Montana ranch to Rupert Murdoch last year for $200 million. And you would ask the natural question, why the fuck does Rupert Murdoch need a 340,000-acre Montana ranch? Yeah. Like, what are you going to do with that? Because why not, I guess? To me, I just see maintenance. Yeah. Like, that's expensive. This next one has to be wrong. This is why. I'm this out. is so wrong. <laughs> low? Yeah. Low. Has to be. This is not reported. Al Saad. Yeah. Industry is industrial. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Three generations, $105 billion in wealth. The 90-year-old monarchy for which Saudi Arabia is named can credit the nation's unrivaled oil reserves for seeding its collective fortune. Mm. This net worth estimate is based on cumulative payouts royal family members are calculated to have received over the past 50 years from the Royal Diwan, the executive office of the king. The total wealth controlled by its estimated 15,000 extended members is likely much higher. Yeah. 15,000 extended members getting payouts. Yeah. Ball so hard. Man. Many royals have made money through brokering government contracts and land deals by founding businesses that service state companies such as 
Saudi Ar- Ar- Aramco. Aramco is the oil company. Yeah. I can never say it right because there's too many vowels. <laughs> the Kingdom's Sovereign Wealth Fund, PIF, has $620 billion in assets. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Salman? Salman? Salman. Yeah. Pers- that sounded racist. Personally controls assets worth more than $1 billion. Yeah. 15,000 extended members, right? Did you really? Did you know? Nope. Did you know Prince Al-Walid? Al-Walid? Al-Walid. Al-Walid bin Talal al-Saud. Uh-huh. Was an early backer of Elon Musk's bid to take the Twitter private. The Twitter's, mm, the Twitter's private. So the Twitter, yeah, which we'll, we'll get into in a little bit. But 15,000 extended members, right? Yeah, Dude, a lot of kids. Th- that's that's a, another level of generation wealth. Yeah, gener- three generations, 15,000. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody was out there doing some work, you know? <laughs> Put in some work, yeah. overtime. Yeah. All right, Hermes, 94.6 billion luxury good manufacturer located in Paris, six generations deep. We all know the French, uh, the brand, so nothing really sexy there. Mm. Uh, Ambani, uh, $84.6 billion industry, another industrial. Yeah. Uh, I can't say his name, but Jurabai Ambani, the father yeah. of whatever, blah. Basically, they built companies, not nothing. <laughs> they built yeah. companies. Uh, Chanel, luxury goods. This was an interesting. So, no, so we Hermes and Chanel made it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So these are private companies. Yeah. Yeah. $79 billion, three generations deep. Uh, luxury good manufacturer. Chanel paid the family five billion in dividends in 2021. In 2020, it paid zero. <laughs> I'll wait a year for five billion. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Just, Imagine just having to <laughs> like keep it cool for a year. So it goes on and on, and there's there's a lot here. I liked a lot of this just because I, I geek out on it, and I recommend you all mm-hmm. take a look. There's some companies and names you know there. I like this one too. Thirty-seven point one billion Ferrero, mm. as in Ferrero share. Yeah. Michael Ferrero built a global chocolate confectionery company from a single store in Italy. His son, Giovanni, took sole charge of the family business after his other son, Pietro, died in a tragic cycling accident in 2011. Jeez. Ferrero acquired Nestle's U.S. candy business for $2.8 billion in 2018. The family manages money through their firms, including Monaco-based Fidesa and Luxembourg-based Tesso Capital. Mm-hmm. Tesso Capital, whatever. Yeah. Late CEO Michelle, often called a real-life Willy Wonka, always wore dark glasses and almost never spoke to the press. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want uh, real-life Willy Wonka. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, that's, that is weird. But, but first, I think a notable thing to mention there was first jar of Nutella made. What? Mm, my kids love Nutella. Where was it? Where was that? Right that, there. That was in the- 1964. First jar of Nutella is produced. I did not even see that. Yeah. Yeah. I try to stay away from that stuff. It's, it's like crack. You like put a little bit in your mouth and it's all downhill from there. Yeah. This goes on and on. There, there's obviously a long list. I won't go through everything, but you've, you've heard some of the big names. Uh, fascinating stuff. I think it's always a good perspective to have when you figure out that a lot of these companies, they make something, they sell something. Notice how no, nobody's Airbnb rich here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nobody's, these are generally manufactured people building stuff. There's very few people who are like pure landowners that have built wealth through real estate and built like this massive amount of wealth, although like Bren's on the list and some of those people later on. Right. But the companies that that build something passionately, mm-hmm. the Chanel's, the Estee Lauder's, the, the, the Walton Company, they're building these businesses mm-hmm. and they keep them private. They don't take them public yeah. in most cases. Those are the ones that have legacy wealth they can hand down to their families that yeah. continue to grow. But that's also, it takes a different type of person to have the self-awareness to put the right people in place to continue to let the, the company succeed, right? I know, for instance, 
the Lakers get a lot of flack for this. They're run as a mom and pop shop. Versus, yeah, but I would say they've they've ran that wrong for a long time. Even, even, that, even now. But that's my point, right? Is it it's that much more impressive for them to keep it private and to keep it going for this long. Well, and a lot of them, I mean, three generations deep, you so typically speaking, the, the next generation doesn't always carry it forward. Sometimes they just screw it all up. That's what I mean. The right? third generation they always is say even a higher probability. They always say the son of the king is a bitch. <laughs> Is that, is that the actual quote? That's the actual the quote. The son of the king is a bitch. Yeah, that's what the Nobel Prize winner Said said. Yeah, quote you're, that. You're literally watering down your Nobel stock when you make some of these quotes. We got we to commiserate before you get on the air and talk about some of this shit next time. It's true, man. Son of the king. Son of the king's a bitch. Yeah. Quote, Said Omar. I yeah. hope they use that as a yeah. quote for the card yeah. so that we can I'm post, it, post it on the that socials. everywhere. Yeah. Lose your job right there. Um, Said, we're calling you an HR. You said the son of the king is a bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. What did you mean by that? <laughs> yeah. No, I meant yeah. the figurative king. I mean, you don't read Dr. Seuss? Yeah. <laughs> is that what It's a little weird looking motherfucker runs yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Always, <laughs> always talking to some cat with a hat on. Yeah, it's, let's be honest. Nobody likes cats. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm not good. I'm not touching that. Good, because I got a cat. That was yeah, a test yeah, question. Yeah, that was a test. I knew, I knew, I, I knew come, better. I will come for you. I, I knew better. I knew better. Well, all right. You've got two other things here to talk about, one of which I really want to talk about. Yeah, which one? Elon Musk? Well, yeah. So Elon... Now, uh, now that he's bought Twitter, said he wants to make the blue check mark that much more accessible to everybody. Yeah. And what was going around is that he's willing to give you the blue check mark for twenty dollars a month. So here, I got some thoughts on this. <laughs> Let's go. Okay. Look, look. I'm already got the check mark for free on Instagram. <laughs> so you got paid. I'm cheap. I'm yeah, cheap. Grandfathered in. Yeah, I'm grandfathered. If Instagram started offering this after all the work that I had to go through and all the time, energy and all that, right. I'm going to be a little like, what What the shit is this? Right. But at the same time, he hasn't said, will you get verified with the exact same badge everybody else got? Because uh-huh. I, I got I to gotta think that he's going to try to keep some kind of notoriety with somebody, right? Yeah. But for him, I don't know. This is just a, clearly a money play here. I mean- it's a great money play. Yeah, you, know you know, a lot of people are going to pay for that. Oh, yeah, easily. Plus, that's and how you get rid of bots. Get, yeah, that's one way to get rid of bots. Yeah. And, I mean... But $20? It, it just goes back to what, what you and I have been saying. and what $20 been saying, a month? What you've been saying for a long time is, like, it should not be that hard to verify someone. Let me give you perspective here. For you to look at my ID and give me a little blue makeshift icon on my shit. Yeah. I got to pay... More than double what I pay for the already just increased price of Apple TV. Right. Apple TV was four ninety nine a month. Yeah, now it's what? Now it's six ninety nine a month. Damn. And you know what? I'll happily pay that, but twenty dollars a like month for a blue check Apple mark on Mu- Twitter? Apple music's like ten ninety nine a month now. Yeah. Okay. I have access to all the music in the world. Yeah. But you want me to pay twenty dollars a month for a little blue check? Yeah, you, something's off this pricing what? model, dog. Hey, someone's gonna, people are gonna pay. I'm sure they will. But come yeah. on, man, this is how dumb I am. I didn't even know that. So Twitter's the one that gives the blue check mark, and then that translates over to all the other apps. No, 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 no. So the, each one has its own blue check mark. Yeah, I, did, I have no idea. I'm, so I'm verified on Instagram only. Listen, don't flex on me like that. No, 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 I'm not yeah. flexing. That yeah. was that was a lot of work, and I've got all according to people who like hate me, all my followers are fake anyway. <laughs> So I've got 18 real followers who happen to be podcast listeners yeah. that then we've come down to, yeah. and the rest of them are all fake. They're all yeah. they're all bots who who don't. All, I'm all full of shit. Yeah. So whatever. But you know, I got that, and then but that's that's. So then you don't have a blue check mark on Twitter. But here's the thing that pisses me off. See, that's not right. It, well, they're not related. The platforms aren't related. Yeah, at all. but I mean, if you're verified on one, you should be verified on the other. Well, and that's the irony is that the the criteria to be verified is the same. Yeah. 
But Instagram rejected me like three times, and then finally I, I got it done, right? Yeah. And it, it all requires like a certain amount of media and within a six-month six month time frame, usually three articles mm-hmm. or whatever it is, blah, blah, blah. I submitted the same criteria to Twitter, and they're like, no. Nah, nah, yeah, not like, good pass. enough. Yeah, pass. Pass. You're way more active on Instagram than you And you, you want to hear the messed up thing about it? Huh. Is if our company, which is publicly traded, yeah. applied for a verified account yeah. and got verified because they're publicly traded, they would be verified. Yeah then I could apply as an executive and be verified on Instagram like in literally two minutes. Yeah. But because they haven't done it and I haven't done it, it just doesn't have to happen. That's how stupid this whole thing is. It's, it's all like, so stupid. but $20 so a, a month, is, bro, come on, there's man. A hi- is there a hierarchy to these things? So it's like an Instagram one better than a Twitter one because there's just more users on Instagram? I think the general consensus is, and this is obviously self-interested, so take it with a grain of salt. I think the general consensus is that Twitter's easier to get. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're like a, a writer or you're in the news, like they verify everybody in those channels pretty quickly. Right. Uh, I think Instagram is supposed to be the hardest. Instagram and Facebook supposed to be the hardest. I think TikTok was easier for a while, but now there's so many people on the platform. I haven't, I really haven't kept up with it. And then Twitter was kind of like the lower end as far as like difficulty goes. But honestly, it's, it's like, it's dumb. People right? People weaponize them for businesses now. It really, and I'll give Elon Musk credit for this. It's supposed to be this person. We know who it is. Mm-hmm. That should not be something you have to pay for. Because think about this. If you use your credit card to sign up, yep. you make a credit card mandatory. You charge a $1 temporary fee to go through, right? Right. And you see my ID as part of that sign-up process. Mm-hmm. That should just be your sign-up process. Why do I got to pay for you to verify who I am monthly? Month- it makes no sense. That makes no sense. You're just you're just monetizing people's like desire to have a blue check mark. Yeah. Which okay, fine, but ten twenty dollars a month is ridiculous. Ten is even ridiculous. Yeah, you don't mind yeah, they should do like, and then if you want like an even bigger check mark, you have to pay fifty dollars a month. Yeah, if you want yours to be black. <laughs> yeah, 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 know? exactly. Yeah, if yeah. you want, if you want yours to have a bored ape on it. Yeah, you know, if you want your NFT verified, I mean, they actually do that too through yeah. Twitter Blue. You have a little different thing. All I'm saying is, it's it's all it's all weird. Yeah. So. Yeah, one last topic. You want to crush that one before we get to Q&A? No, no, no that, that, one, that one's good. That one, let's get into the Q&A. Wow, Saeed just totally backed off. What, what's, what's wrong, buddy? You, no. you, uh, <laughs> Don't do this. I'm not doing anything. What are you talking about? You just, okay, fine. Being as it's Halloween, we didn't expect a whole lot of engagements. We have some questions. I will say Misa did ask like three questions. I'm not sure we should give her the benefit of answering all three. I mean, come on. It's Misa. I mean, she is one of our original five listeners. Yeah, number one. That doesn't entitle her to ask five questions. Yeah, it's okay. She, okay. She well, earned it. All right, well. Your favorite Halloween costume, my son, he was dressed up not as a trash man. Mm-hmm. He was dressed as a trash truck. My wife took a pinata of yeah. a trash truck she found, hollowed it out, reinforced it, and made it like a wearable one with suspenders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he loved, he was crashing into stuff, dumping stuff. It was, it was yeah. insanity. Love that. Yeah. Um, Adam this year was Captain America. Mm. He got the fake muscles on and everything, and it was cute. My daughter didn't realize there were fake muscles at first, so he like walked out. She's like... Adam, you're so strong. <laughs> so she was really into that. Mm. And then um, Arya had an outfit change. So she started off as a fairy and then turned into Princess Jasmine. Wow, two outfits. Two outfits. Bro, you're setting your whole life up for expensive know, man. costs, man. I'm, I'm, I'm wrapped up. It's over. You know next Halloween is going to have to be 2-2. Two, two. Yeah, easily. 2-2, two, two, get two. it? Yeah. <laughs> Question number two. Two from Misa. How to get over the fear of buying your first investment property? Yeah, I actually have this fear, so... And I don't have an investment property yet, but I plan on getting one. You just got to pull the trigger, I think. Yes. There is no set of circumstances where buying real estate is ever easy. Right. That it's not without its challenges. It'll always be a pain in the ass. You will go into it uneasy. You will go into it somewhat speculative. There, There is 
The only thing that is consistent is you're consistently unclear on what's going to happen yeah, that's good. Yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. the end. So yeah. it's just one of those things. You do it, you jump in, you learn that there is something to be said for that social media bravado and that ego and that that gets someone to convert and actually do it. Right. And then it becomes easier for them to do, not because it's an easier process, just because they know it a little bit better. Right. That's it. That's think, there's no and trick. And I think that goes with any endeavor that we want to take. Like for me, jumping in and wanting to do the podcast, right? I know there's going to be some bumps in the road. I know I'm going to be making mistakes. And it's just a matter of taking those hits and just continuing to push forward. And I love that I have your first mistakes yeah. recorded, yeah. including a show that I can never air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's for you and I. Yeah, you went too extreme. Like, I, I had to. I, I did that for you, though. You didn't do You that still don't recognize you that. Don't, you didn't do that for me. I did. You, you know I did. Question number three. And dealing with tenants that turn out being bad. This is a two-part question. This, you can't do that. This is a follow-up, yeah. That's a follow-up. That's technical foul. That's actually a good question for you. Yeah. Tenants that turn out being bad. Okay, so everybody will I, have this at some point. In time. I would assume that means tenants that are delinquent on paying their rent. It can mean a lot of things. Yeah. You could have tenants that are that are delinquent. You could have tenants that that just consistently call you over little tiny issues. I've had yeah. that happen before. You Maintenance could, issues. Yeah, and, I mean, for every one of these tenants, I've had tenants that are absolutely amazing. Yeah, that'll 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 repair things on their own. That'll won't even tell you, and they'll just fix things, and and they'll do a great job. And or they're they're over communicative in times. There's people who take unbelievable pride of ownership in the properties. So yeah, what I'll tell you is is as you get better in buying property and renting property, mm -hmm. you get better understanding what you're looking for from a renter. Right. So I was going to ask you, are there things that like you can look for in like the you know background check or when you're interviewing tenants that like can help that or? for me it's the story yeah like the story of you can generally tell somebody who's got a legit story who's moving for all the right reasons versus somebody who's moving for the wrong reasons yeah yeah so i'm i'm not saying I'm, I'm discriminating against anyone for any any reason or anything that's going on in their life but i've always found the ones that are communicative and can articulate the why they're moving and you know what they're looking for are generally going to be your good tenants. The ones yeah. who struggle, who are kind of like the story doesn't make sense, there's gaps. Any of those early kind of hesitations, mm -hmm. you're well within your rights to say, I don't want to rent to this person. Right. And do you feel that tenants, like when you start to ask those questions, they're open to sharing all that information? Well, so our most of that sharing isn't like directly. It's just right. we have an application process through a portal. And yeah. they're going to go onto the portal. They're going to fill out the application electronically. And then we get some reports that pull down from some of the information they give us. So right. we can do that. And we also do background checks. We'll call the previous places that they lived and figure out what's going on if they yeah. they're previous renters or if they were owners. Mm -hmm. uh, if you tell me you owned a property and you're moving, you know, for something else, I'm going to pull title on the property you said you were, was your departing residence. Right. I'm going to go that far into it just because the you're going to be living in in my house. Yeah. And I'm going to trust you to live there usually for a two year contract and whenever we do this. Right. So I want to know that you're telling me the truth. Yeah. If you can't tell me the truth, the core of our relationship starts off something that's not true or a half truth. Right. You're not. You're out. Right. And, and people people have like this weird thing when they become landlords is they get so worried about the first tenant and getting somebody in there. Yeah. They they go with the first person. And you could have a property that's overpriced and get someone who comes in the door fast and you could rent to them, not realizing you're over market, you're missing out on these really quality tenants. It's always better to, to get a little bit less than you were hoping for, mm -hmm. but get a great quality tenant because yeah. you did the work to find somebody. Right. I agree. And in my I, I've I've paid the price for for renting high in the past. Mm -hmm. A landlord who rents high, you're you're gonna generally gonna have more problems. It might be worth it for you, but for me, I'd rather have somebody who's 
a higher quality tenant paying a little bit less in there for two years and not to worry about it. Right. You got, I would, Im- I would imagine that if I'm renting on, on the higher end and that person coming in is going to also expect a lot more too. Mm-hmm. Right. And some little things I've learned, get a, get a pet deposit. I know it sounds like I love pets. I love animals. Get yeah. a pet deposit. Like some dogs will just fuck your shit up. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can never tell a good dog, bad dog, just get a pet deposit, mm-hmm. return whatever, whatever you feel like you, you should return at the end. Yeah. I, I do collect a big first month, last month up front. Mm-hmm. and you know that that's just life you know yeah yeah i want i know that's a lot of money for some people and i know it's tough and i know some of the larger larger renters won't or larger landlords won't like require you to do that it's just, yeah there's like a couple hundred dollars you yeah know, up front no not me yeah, yeah not the yeah. way i roll yeah and we do we do spend a lot of time taking pride of ownership taking care of the property so they get what they get out of it and i get what i get out of it so right it works out at the end of the day it's a partnership and then I always do walkthrough inspections and definitely have uh, your people wear body cams when they go in on things that go a little wild. Oh, uh, yeah. wow. All, all my guys wear body cams when they go in. We've had the full gambit of the weird stuff happen. Jeez. So, yeah. Dude, that's the part that I think scares people off. Body cams? No, I mean, you're just saying that we've had the full gambit where you would need, you would suggest and recommend to wear body cams. Well, I look at it this way. If someone's going in for repair mm-hmm. and it's a repair that's, you know, something's gone south. Yeah. If there weren't a body cam, I can see what they saw when they saw it, right? I don't right. have to take your word for it later on. Right. So some repair guys won't do it. Like, it's all good. Like, if it's not a, not a bit bad situation, it's fine. But if it's a hostile situation, like, I've had holdover tenants. I've had people who are, you know, not paying rent. And they're saying, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to pay rent until you fix X, Y, and Z. I go, okay, great. I'm going to have a guy come over, but he's going to wear a body cam because I want to see what he's looking at. Right. You know, it's not like we're hiding it. We're very clear. Yeah. So anyway uh what are your thoughts on california allowing the building of adus on sfr property i fucking love it yeah california is one of the most bureaucratic pains in the ass for building permits and for a lot of things but adus are not one of them right now it's actually Mm -hmm. really easy to get permits for that and you can use it for not only your excess living area for you or you know mother-in-law suite a gym uh or you can use it for extra cash flow as the property i love it i think everybody in california should be running that down if you got enough square footage yeah 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 it's a it's tremendous value add uh with the dead rising from the grave what impact will these new consumers have on housing this is a question for halloween no he's actually asking about dead people running properties what the fuck kind of question is that yeah <laughs> what is that no i'm talking about your question what, what do you of course mean? it's a halloween themed question yeah, do you don't mean? play or hate the man <laughs> it's halloween he has a themed question yeah first dr seuss now this shit oh no, no I, I love this question you did not love this question. You looked at me with the most derogatory look in your face. I apologize, Jonathan. This guy's a dick sitting in front of me. No, His, no, your question no, was very no. appropriate. No, actually, actually, no, Jonathan. I like Jonathan a lot. Do you? Yeah. Uh huh. He's a great guy. You, you don't know anything about Jonathan. No, I know a lot about Jonathan. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Well, uh, I I think we're gonna have uh, a lot of problems with consumers uh, demand on housing anyway. Whenever you know the economy turns around, I just think it's gonna be a very long time before that happens. Mm-hmm. So. Dead people, live people, we all fighting for living space, brother. Mm-hmm. What's one time when you got a spooky feeling in your gut as part of a business opportunity? Mm, man, when Chris asked me to join the podcast. You didn't get a spooky feeling. I got a spooky feeling. Really? Yeah, man, I saw your toes out. I was like, man, why is this t- guy's toes always out? I love having You're toes way out. too comfortable having your toes out. You want to hear something else, too? <laughs> I'm not wearing underwear right now. <laughs> I, after the day, I don't know what it is. Like after the gym, do I come this. back home. I shower. Like I need, I need some, I need some space. Like you know what I mean. Like I need, I need, I need air. Oh, jeez. Like it's, it's, it's just what happens. This yeah. is when I go around the house, bro. Nine times out of ten, you come over. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. 
Uh, spooky feeling is part of a business opportunity. My wife and I were looking at starting uh, an infrared laser sauna business. I remember this. I was actually really excited. I was too. And um, I, on a whim, bought, I think it was six or eight of yeah, these yeah. really high-end sunlighting red infrared saunas, right? Mm-hmm. We got a good deal on them. They were looking to sell them off at a seminar or some something that they were at, some event, and they didn't sell all of them. So I'm like, just give me whatever you have left. I think it was like six or eight. Paid cash. They were going to get shit to the house. We were going to open up uh, our own like red light sauna place. Mm-hmm. I still love red light saunas. I still think it's a great thing. But we looked at opening up a franchise originally right around the corner from the house. But then I just got this weird feeling with the franchise. I talked to some of the franchisees and it just wound up being... Everybody was critical over the CEO who was significantly younger than me and seemed a little arrogant. Mm. So I, I said, you know what? We're not going to do that. I, you know, I tried to go back and forth on negotiating a region. And I'm like, why would I even negotiate a so region? What did you, you do with the, the red light songs that you bought? I sold them for a profit. We, <laughs> got, we had such a good deal on them. No way. Yeah. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. You, you didn't keep one of them? No, I, I, I probably should have in retrospect. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. That'd, be, that'd be really cool to have at the house. Yeah, and then we, I went back and forth with the Irvine company negotiating the lease, and then they're, they're just, it was, they're really weird, man. They'd rather have a place, like, be totally vacant, and it's still vacant now, and it's been six months now. Dude, what, uh, red light uh, sauna uh, studio opened up right next to the house. Your house? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Have you been? It's, no, but it's packed. So the, a, a real true red light. So a lot of these people use like, really shitty saunas because they're just mm-hmm. trying to get lots of people in them and turn them over. Yeah. Sunlighten is like the the brand and that's what we had but if you go into a real red light sauna you should feel like almost like warmth coming from the inside out it actually heat the infrared light heats your core body temperature up from the inside out yeah so you don't feel you don't feel the heat on the outside like you would in a traditional sauna you're still going to because you're in a sauna yes but the the the, you're gonna get this thermogenic effect exactly which has a tremendous amount of value and health benefits for you right so I'm, i'm a big fan for obvious reasons obviously i was looking into it because i think there's some money to be made there but right um, my wife and I got a very spooky, eerie feeling about it, and we backed off the buying opportunity and, and decided not to pursue it, especially heading into a recessionary economy, right? Uh, which I think proved to be a good idea. Yeah. Can you talk about why a seller would take their home off the market? Uh, right now, I think that's just because of they think that there's going to be a bit of a challenge finding buyers, Yeah. which I think is true. They don't want to sell the price, sell the property for lower than they expected. And a lot of people are going through a little bit of a sticker shock of this property might not be worth as much as my neighbor sold his property for three months ago. Right. Or, okay, let's say I sell this property. Where am I going to buy? And how much am I going to have to pay? What's my rate going to look like? Right. There's that. And then, I mean, I know, I don't know how much of this actually works out for people, but there's strategic games mind games that they can play too right if you keep having to cut your price down by 20 grand 20 grand 10 grand mm-hmm. by it's, at some point you're gonna have to pull it off the market let it sit for a couple months and then maybe relist it again even that looks bad if somebody yeah. does their homework so uh i would say the other thing that, that that i'm seeing a lot of too is people are pulling their properties off the market because they're they're saying you know what i got the super low interest rate i could probably cash flow this thing as a rental now yes even at a 30-year mortgage rate, even at a higher LTV than right. uh, than most people think, or they're looking at the rental rates in their areas saying, okay, they've crept up a lot more than I thought. Right. I'm going to rent this out, and then I'm going to go rent an arbitrage difference, and then when the time is right, I'll buy again, but I've got time to save. Yeah. And there's a full gambit of reasons out there. We are in a very, very weird economic time. I will say rental rates are starting to decelerate and come down in certain areas because the consumer just has had enough. Yeah, so. exactly. And that is it for Halloween night, kids. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah. A little history lesson. Janet Yellen sucks. Yeah. 
these people are rich. They held their companies privately. They didn't go public. For multiple generations. Even dead people make money. Yeah. And Saeed Omar still deserves that goddamn Nobel Prize. Yeah. Yes, sir. Good enough recap? Yes, sir. All right. We'll see you next episode. Bye, everybody. Saeed loves you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Higher Standard Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you are listening to this on. If you like this episode, please write a review and share it with us. You're getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase what's possible when leaders decide to uphold a higher standard for their businesses, their investments, their families, and most importantly, themselves. If you want to see more of my content, I post daily on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, so be sure to follow me on your favorite social media platform. And with that, it is a wrap. And as always, I look forward to hanging with you all on the next episode.